This B-Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com B-E. That's IXL.com B-E. We are proud to partner with MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Students can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, wind time, activity periods, RTI, counselor and teacher appointments, and so much more. Even my favorite, Synergy Time. And with its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, my flex learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com slash B-E. Welcome to the Cybertraps podcast. I'm Jethro Jones, host of the podcast, Transformative Principal and author of the book, School X, How to Redesign Your School for the People Right in Front of You. I am a former principal at all levels of K-12 education. Hello everyone. I am Frederick Lane, an author, attorney, and educational consultant based in Brooklyn, New York. I'm the author of 10 books, including most recently, Cybertraps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyberethical Kids, and Cybertraps for Expecting Moms and Dads. Jethro and I have teamed up to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to teachers, parents, and others about the risks arising from the use and misuse of digital devices. Over the coming weeks and months, we'll be talking to some of the world's leading experts from the fields of education, parenting, sociology, and cyber safety. Join us as we look at what it takes to better navigate our increasingly high-tech world. The Cybertraps Cyber- po- oh, <laughs> <Go ahead. laughs> Cyber podcast 
is a production of the Center for Cyber Ethics, an independent nonpartisan educational institute dedicated to the study and promotion of cyber ethics as a positive social force through research, curricular development, publishing and media, professional training, and public advocacy. <laughs> and this part I know I actually do say, greetings there, Jethro. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, sometimes we talk about who's going to say the mission statement, but sometimes we just forget to d- determine that. Indeed, exactly right. Well, <laughs> actually, the mission statement, we're both eager to read it and promote it because it is, in fact, central to what we're going to be talking about today, which is the rollout of the first phase of the Center for Cyber Ethics and the work that we're going to be doing with school communities in the months to come. Well, this is actually really exciting because this idea started several years ago for you and several months ago for me, and it's exciting to see it come to fruition. We have a uh, nonprofit uh, registration packet in with the IRS, and uh, that's (laughs) going, you know, uh, but we also have a board and we've been meeting and been really, it's exciting to watch it come to fruition and to see what it is that uh, we're able to build. So we're going to be talking today about phase one to steal a coin from the uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe um, (laughs) and and talk about phase one of the Center for Cyber Ethics, um, which is about dealing with cyber ethics in the school community. So do you want to talk a little bit about that first to get us started and give us a framework for what that looks like? Sure, let's let's uh, roll a little history into that, but I do want to give a shout out to Marvel and say they need a Captain Ethics as part of their universe, That's right. and we are here to help make that happen. <laughs> <laughs> and frankly, if I get a chance to meet uh, Mark Ruffalo or Chris Evans, then I'll be a very happy camper. Oh, yeah. Um, all of that being said, this project actually got started before the Marvel Universe uh, hit the screens back in 2015, 2016. Although, since I'm not completely nerded out on that, I can't say that's absolutely yeah, wrong in terms it's of okay. title. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll defer to a more knowledgeable person. But that being said, uh, this project, uh, this concept really was an outgrowth of work that I started doing with Dr. Troy Hutchings, who was one of our early interviewees. And with the National Association of State Directors of Teacher Education and Certification, NASTEC, which we've talked about a fair amount. Um, And it seemed like a good extension of the cyber traps work that I had started to do in 2011. So back in 2015, 2016, uh, I had some conversations with Troy and with a couple of other folks about this idea and seeing if we could get it up and rolling. And for a variety of different reasons, travel, work, what have you, it just kind of languished for a while. And then fortunately, uh, you and I started working on the podcast, and it seemed like an even better outgrowth of the work that we were doing with respect to that. So so together, and with the help of some other folks, we've managed to get the 501c3 created. We're waiting for the IRS to do its work. And the the relationship, obviously, with the Cybertrap series that I've done, with the lecturing I've done, and then by extension with the consulting you do uh, for principals and for educators, um, makes this a really natural fit. And phase one is, is an expansion of what we are already doing, you know, in terms of the writing, in terms of the outreach to the educational community and so forth. 
Yeah, so uh, we're talking about cyber ethics in the school community, and you and I have both been talking about this in one way or another for a long time. Me, as an acting principal, working with my students and families and teachers about making good decisions, and now me as a consultant and you giving speeches on this for many, many years. I think you're at like eight to 10 years. Is that right? You've been doing this? Oh, you just muted yourself, Fred. Brilliantly. I, um, I was thinking back on this, Jethro, because I started um, doing lectures probably in the early 1990s on, oh. com yeah, on, on computer stuff for lawyers. Uh, because when I, I was uh, in law firms for about five years up in Vermont and got involved with like the Young Lawyers Association and things like that. And so they were always looking for people to help explain computers to attorneys, which, mm -hmm. by the way, is an ongoing process. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, I think that that challenge still exists. It certainly still exists. And so um, that's really when I started speaking. But in terms of the work that is relevant to what you and I are doing, um, it really, I think, is a combination of the privacy and the educational stuff. And that goes back probably 2008, 2009 is when things started to uh, move in that direction. And of course, it's accelerated ever since the publication of Cyber Traps for Educators in 2015. So, yeah. you know, this is, this is a longstanding area of interest. In listening to you though, I'd love to hear you expand on this a little bit because it strikes me from the principles that I've worked with and I've observed, you know, partly, you know, a decade on the school board, you see a lot of principles in action. You're dealing with ethical decisions of one kind or another every minute of the day. Uh, yes, I would definitely say so. and. Um, the reason why I like the idea of, of talking about the cyber ethical decisions rather than just the ethical decisions is that it carries over from the ethical decisions that you make from something as simple as how do you deal with a student who has made a bad choice and what do you do about that? And do you punish or do you empathize and help them learn? I mean, what is your response to, the, to those things? I think is so key to what a principal decides to do on a daily basis but every single one of those decisions comes back to what do I believe is really important and how do I communicate that those things are really important? And so, yes, it, it is something that you are constantly dealing with as a principal that there are ethical decisions you need to make every single day and not just ethical decisions in that sense, but also you have power to shape a human being's life by the decisions that you make. And so, quick story about this. Um, I had a uh, assistant principal. I was not a very good kid, made a lot of bad choices and got in trouble a lot. And my um, prince, my vice principal, her name was Edie. I don't remember her last name, but she was had a doctorate and she was supposed to be called Dr. Whatever. I honestly don't remember it, but I would call her Edie just to get under her skin. And she could have really gotten offended and upset by that. But instead she said, you know, it's not appropriate for you to call me Edie. So you need to call me Dr. Whatever my last name is. And I said, okay, well, I will call you that if you um, call, say good morning to the great and wonderful Jethro every single day. And I'm almost embarrassed to share this story, except that. <laughs> almost, almost, <laughs> <is> that <laughs> almost, I'm very close. Uh, the reason why I'm not is because she 
didn't have ego, but she recognized that I needed to learn how to respect other people. And Mm. she was willing to show me respect and positively impact my life by saying, it really doesn't matter what you call me to me personally. And it doesn't matter what I call you. But if you think that showing me respect is calling me doctor, whatever, and calling you the great and wonderful Jethro, then I'll do it because it doesn't even matter. And what she showed me was that I, as a person mattered more than whatever title I or she had. And that kind of thing is really key. And she taught me a very valuable lesson in that. So that, that is in fact a great story, Jethro. Fully <laughs> apart from the t-shirt idea I now have. Yeah. Um, I, I think that what you're really underscoring, and this is at the core, I think, of the cyber ethical work that we're trying to do, is this idea that it is about the relationships that we have with other people and how we treat them. And Mm -hmm. that should be something that we can effectively carry over to our use of devices. And one of the challenges I think we're trying to address is that people think sometimes that they're freed from the normal constraints of human behavior just because they're online or because they're using a digital device. And we need, and, and maybe this will just naturally occur, but we can speed it up. Maybe people will slowly develop the socialization that we need to have in order to use this stuff effectively. This is the challenge I think that we face. Yeah, absolutely. So as we mentioned, this is this is phase one of the operations of the Center for Cyber Ethics, and there will be more phases to come. Um, and some of the other things that we're going to talk about are employers and employees and the cyber ethical issues related there, um, caretakers and the vulnerable, and um, and and how there are cyber traps for people who are vulnerable, including people with disabilities, people who are advanced in age and could be taken advantage of, healthcare providers, first responders, and many, many more places that we can go with this. Um, the thing is, is that we need a way to make good decisions as it relates to the technology that we're using. And as we started the Center for Cyber Ethics, we thought there were all these things that we could do and we really needed, knew that we needed to focus down on one specific area and grow from there. You and I have expertise in education, but we don't have expertise in every other area. No, that's absolutely true. And, and later on in the show, as we begin to wrap up, we will encourage people to reach yes. out to us. <laughs> if you have expertise in these areas and you're interested in the nonprofit mission that we're putting together, we want to hear from you because we're certainly looking for credible assistance in all of these areas. Let me just throw out one thing though that I think is important, particularly uh, in the wake of 9-11. When we talk about caretakers for the vulnerable, one of the groups that I've learned over the last few years have a particular problem with online fraud are veterans in the military, veterans of the military. And it, is actually just shocking to me that people will try to take advantage of people who are wrestling with those kinds of experiences and memories or suffering from PTSD. I mean, it is the lowest of the low to to rip off members of our military. And and I am really passionate about trying to help people understand that the risk exists you know, people faking military experience or using uniforms to defraud others or defraud fellow servicemen 
or not fellow servicemen. In any case, I, I do want to give a shout out to everybody who has served and we will do our best to help with these kinds of online issues. Yeah, well, and we've had a few people that have been involved in the military um, on the podcast as well. And from my experience living in Alaska, where I live next to um, a Coast Guard base and, a, and an Army base, I got to know a lot of the things that they experience um, as, as close as someone who's not in it can be. And I just mm-hmm. got to say, I really admire the, the dedication that they have and their values and the beliefs they have to sacrifice their lives for a bunch of other people that will never be able to thank them. And I just also appreciate that very much. Let's, yeah, well, uh, you know, let me, just before we move on, let me just because, of course, our heads are still wrapped up in it, but people may recover, the, may remember the cover of the New York Times from 9-12, um, way back when, and there was a jet flying over New York City. And one of the reasons that made such an impression on Vermonters was that that was a jet from the Vermont uh, Air National Guard. Mm. Um, so, you know, we weren't quite as close as you, I think, to the military service members up there, but absolutely agree with what you're saying. Yeah, for sure. Um, so let's talk about some of the ongoing activities that we have uh, for the center. So first and foremost is this podcast that you're listening to right now. And thank you for listening. Appreciate it. Please share it with other educators so they can understand what we're doing also. What other things do we have um, ongoing as, as part of the center productions? Well, sure. I mean, the first thing right off the bat, of course, is that Cyber Traps for Educators 2.0 was only published a year ago. Um, complete update from the 2015 version. So that's still relevant. It is a useful tool for educators, for school communities to understand some of the risks that are out there. One of the things about that, and this brings us uh, back to NASDAQ, is that the revision was intended to incorporate the model code of ethics for educators. And you'll remember that we interviewed RJ Rodriguez about the way in which the state of Hawaii was implementing the model code of ethics. Um, A lot of other jurisdictions are working with it in different ways. So if you're curious, not only about the cyber traps that are out there for educators, but how the model code of educa- model code of ethics for educators is relevant to all of that, then cyber traps for educators 2.0 is a great place to start. One of the things that we've discussed, and it's going to be great to have your insight into this as we move forward, is to reorganize the cyber traps for version 3.0, which is tentatively scheduled for next summer, hopefully in time for the NASTEC conference in Boston, uh, which you'll have to make a trip out to if you can. I want to go to Boston. Shoot. (laughs) Well, it's a homecoming for me, of course, which is always a great (laughs) thing. But yeah, the um, the thing with these cyber traps, and actually I'm in the process of doing this with cyber traps for the young version 2.0, is to organize them in a more effective way that reflects the kinds of risks that are out there. So with Cyber Traps for Educators 3.0, the goal will be to organize the various topics that we discuss on the show and so forth into three categories of ethical risks. Number one, um, personal cyber traps, mistakes that people make, instances of getting yourself uh, into trouble that don't involve other people, um, you know, 
self, uh, as they say in soccer, own goals, <laughs> self-harm <laughs> self in a way. Then the next category will be the antisocial cyber traps where you are um, acting badly towards others, but it's not a criminal act. And then the last category, of course, will be the most serious, the real headline grabbers, where educators engage in conduct which is criminal and, and obviously career ending, uh, if, if in fact that it's shown that they've committed it. Yeah, well, I really like this reorganization because what it highlights is that everybody is susceptible to the first two and you can prevent yourself from being susceptible to the third. And what I like about that is that it highlights that there's not necessarily a right or wrong, but you need to make the decision beforehand. And so, for example, one of the people we'll talk about here in a little bit, he's a teacher and he does TikTok dances with his students, which um, he's decided that it's totally appropriate and feels comfortable doing it. Other people don't feel the same way and that's fine and they get to make their own choices. But when you make a choice, you need to deal with whatever consequences there are. And I guarantee there are people who say, this guy's the best teacher because he does this. And people who say, this guy's <laughs> the worst teacher because he does this. And you know, that's, yes. that's what I love about having these ethical discussions is that in a lot of ways, there's not a definitive right or wrong answer, especially on these first two. There are just, you need to decide what you're going to do and then make a choice and, and be true to, to that choice and, you know, do whatever I, I think, you can from it. Right. And I think you've put your finger on it perfectly, Jethro, because that's the point of the model code of ethics for educators, right? It, the model code of ethics for educators is not a code of conduct. So if you have a code of conduct, I'm sure you had acceptable use policies and all of that in the schools you worked in. Those are designed to tell you what to do or what not to do and what the consequences are if you do or don't do them. Now, with respect to the model code of ethics for educators, it's really designed to encourage conversations about potential problems that might arise. So using uh, Dr. Trevor Buffon's example, of the TikTok dances that he does, that would be potentially more of a problem. And, and as a principal, you can weigh in on this. That would be more of a problem if you wake up one morning and you discover a teacher on your staff all of a sudden has 300,000 Instagram followers because he's dancing up a storm in the classroom with his students. But on the other hand, if you've had a conversation with him ahead of time or the faculty have had a group discussion about what the potential risks might be and what, what kind of um, limits might need to be placed on it. I mean, we all remember the outrage when Elvis Presley danced on the Ed mm -hmm. Sullivan show. There are dan well, not dances, all us, and there are dances. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> and I will say, actually, I'm not even old enough, but you know, yeah. I've seen the YouTube videos. Yeah. So in any case, you know, this is the thing. And, and God, it, it, it's, it's very much like parenting, right? You tell your kids, let's have a conversation before you do something. Mm -hmm. And usually the outcome will be much better than if you just do it and something happens. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I, I think that that's really where these ethical discussions need to go. Are we having conversations that improve our understanding of what the potential consequences are and we get buy-in from other members of the community. 
And obviously we're starting with the school community uh, because that's what we know. Yeah, exactly. Um, so another thing is we mentioned that you've um, been doing uh, presentations and workshops and conferences on this topic for years, and you're going to the Professional Practices Institute in Oklahoma City in October. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, apart from it being my first pandemic <laughs> lecture, uh, yeah, that's fun. Um, yeah, so anyway, um, Professional Practices Institute is a subset of uh, NASDAQ, and it is specifically aimed at the members of NASTEC who are licensing investigators and licensing professionals for the educational community. So you remember we had Quentin Dale on, uh, we had Brian Devine. Um, these are the folks who go to PPI, that if something goes wrong, if an educator is charged with some kind of misconduct, uh, you know, Quentin Q does the investigation, uh, Brian is ultimately responsible for overseeing the due process of the investigation and the decision as to whether or not an educator keeps their license. So um, it's, a, it's a really, really interesting group of people. And one of the fun things about it, honestly, Jethro, is it's a chance to bring in the computer forensics work mm -hmm. as well as the ethical work, because these folks are grappling every single day with the investigation into digital devices, the retrieval of information, online investigation into social media posts and all the rest of that. So all of the stuff that we cover in terms of online behavior, that's what they deal with. Great group of people. Yeah, very cool. Well, I think that's going to be awesome. I'm sure we're going to have multiple guests from that conference that are going to be yes. on the Cybertraps uh, podcast and, and hopefully have more opportunities to go help them in their work as well through the Center for Cyber Ethics also. So, um, you've you've been doing a lot of those. I've started doing a lot of presentations, um, especially to church groups here locally um, mm -hmm. about sexting and how to talk to your kids about that. Especially that's been a big um, topic of conversation, especially recently, because a lot of people, you know, you mentioned before that have a conversation with your kids before they do something, but it is really hard for parents to have those conversations with their kids and they need all the help they can get um, to do that. And this extends to principals and teachers, teachers and students, and teachers and parents. And these kind of conversations really need to happen, and we need to be doing things to help them uh, do that. So we want to go, let, go let ahead. Let me ask you yep. real quickly. I, I think that's absolutely fascinating, and I'm curious to hear what kind of responses you've gotten from the audience, or, or you know, what issues have arisen when you've been talking to people. Well, the biggest issue is that kids are afraid their devices are going to get taken away. And they are very comfortable saying, I don't want my parents to take away my phone if I tell them that I've done any of this. So they, they have a very big incentive to not admit to doing anything because they're going to lose their privileges. Um, and parents need, to, uh, parents need to understand that it's not about <laughs> taking the device away. It's about having the conversation about how to use it appropriately. And if, if your only response is that I'm going to take it away, then the kid's never going to tell you that they're doing stuff. And so mm -hmm. my advice is always, and this applies to schools as well. When a kid tells you they did something wrong, praise them, say, thank you. And then don't impose a consequence right away. You can the next day, two days later, go back and say, you know, I've been thinking about this and 
it, it's not okay for you to have a device if this is what you're going to be doing. And just delaying that consequence helps them understand that it is a consequence of misbehavior, not an indication that they're a bad person. Um, nor is it something that says, I can't trust you with anything anymore because that's not the case either, because we can still trust them, especially because they told us they did something. Now, if you discover right. it, then it's a different story. But in the beginning, those, those opportunities for kids to say, this is what I did wrong, or for teachers to say, this is what I did wrong, um, saying, thanks for letting me know that I was really brave and proud of you. And let's think about how we can resolve this. And it may lead to a consequence later, but it doesn't have to start there. I, I, that's, that's really, I think, excellent advice, Jethro. And, and I would also add to that, that anybody who's listening with younger children has a great opportunity to get, get ahead of the curve by really talking through these issues. And it is very difficult from a parenting point of view because we don't want to necessarily talk about these issues with our kids. And in particular, we don't like to think that they are doing these things with their yeah. devices. But the reality is that they are, there's a very good chance they will. And so if you're able to get ahead of the curve and explain to children what some of the risks are associated with these behaviors and have them talk with you about what they think the consequence should be if they engage in it, then getting even that modicum of buy-in makes things a lot easier. Yeah. And, you know, this goes back to the ethical decisions that principals make on a daily basis is if you can say, this is, this is where we're at. And this is, this is the, we need to figure out a consequence for this. Then kids can say, oh yeah, I think this should be the consequence. And they can get totally on board with what you're mm -hmm. talking about much easier than you would ever imagine. And then they, the best part is they start policing themselves, Fred. And then they say, you know, hey, I did this and it's it's not right. And this actually works. I mean, kids will will police themselves, which is um, pretty amazing. So we're just about out of time, but I want to take a minute and just talk about some of the recent cyber ethical issues in school communities. And what um, we're just going to talk big picture here, and we're not going to get into any of these too deeply. But there are a couple of things that we need to um you know, just highlight that these things exist and talk a little bit about them. Um, do you want to go first or should I? Why don't you go ahead and then I'll chime okay. in on some of the things we popped up with. Okay, so um, we have, uh, we've got a lot going on in the world right now. <laughs> and, and it's a challenging place. I'm bored, I don't know about you. Yeah. <laughs> So there, there's been a lot over the last year and a half, not just with the pandemic, but also with things around anti-vaxxing, um, around um, the January 6th thing, around Antifa and Black Lives Matter and all this kind of stuff. And there, there are two issues or two situations, both with high school teachers, where one high school teacher was fired after praising Antifa and saying, quote, I have 180 days to turn them into revolutionaries. And then another one from my old district in Alaska, where an Alaska high school teacher is suspended for telling Zoom class that George Floyd would still be alive if he had complied with police and sidled into their car. Now, I actually watched the video of the, um, of the teacher in Alaska. 
Um, one, because I want to see if anybody I knew popped up on there, which they didn't. I didn't know this teacher, <laughs> but I was curious. Um, and two, a I want to see emotion. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Number two, I wanted to see what she was actually saying. And the, the problem here is that both of these teachers got preachy and they're both on very opposite sides, but they got preachy and said, this is what I believe. And therefore what you should believe as well. And to me, this is one of the major issues of, um, of what happens in a school community is that the teachers think that they need to indoctrinate the kids with what they personally believe when really learning is not about saying, here's the information and shoving it into their brain. It's about helping them discover for themselves, one, what they believe. And if this teacher would have, instead of saying, this is what should have happened, if she would have said, what would have happened if George Floyd acted this way, it would have been a completely different conversation. It would have mm -hmm. been the kids making the comments, not her. And yeah. in today's age where we're doing Zoom class and yeah, we've said hundreds of times, if it's out on the internet, it's going to be recorded. So just be prepared. And, well, and, and now, of course, you know, one of the one of the subcategories, one of the cyber traps for educators, I've labeled cameras are everywhere because yeah. half of the examples that we're going to throw into the show notes are teachers who were recorded by students mm -hmm. and the videos get out into the community and we can have an interesting conversation as to whether or not that is ethical behavior by a student. You know, I think most people would say, well, if, if a teacher, for instance, is saying, I've got 180 days to make you a radical, well, parents deserve to know that. So right. you know, there's, there's probably a legitimate motivation for a student to say, hey, this doesn't feel right to me, you know, mm -hmm. that someone is doing that. Now, in that particular class, it was a sting by Project Veritas, but, you know, putting that aside, you know, there are plenty of teachers who are no longer teaching because of student videos. So right. the, this is a real issue. And, and I think the thing that you're underscoring, Jethro, which is interesting, is that we have, we have layers of, of public opinion, or, or I should say layers of public expression of opinion, right? So if you've got someone who is expressing those opinions basically as an op-ed in the classroom, then that's problematic because mm -hmm. that's, that's the teacher really trying to use their platform to present a viewpoint that doesn't allow for that dialogue very easily. Well, and what, it's called, it, what, what that's called in education is that you have a captive audience and right. that your students right. don't get to choose whether or not to listen to you you are the teacher, they are required to listen to you. And so that's why it's so important for you to be clear about what you're saying and when it's your opinion and when it's the curriculum or whatever the case may be. Right. And the curriculum ideally is something that has gone through a curriculum committee and, right. <laughs> and has gone through vetting of one kind or another. If you're going entirely off book and creating your own curriculum on the fly, right. that's a risky thing to do. Now, the next piece of that, of course, is taking your personal opinion about world affairs or world events or what have you and putting it up on social media. And this is where that gray area emerges, right, in terms mm -hmm. of, you know, an educator's First Amendment right to have opinions and to express them and the school's right 
to maintain a teaching environment or an educational environment that is fair to all students. And so that's one of the reasons that teachers get into trouble for their social media posts. And then, of course, the last category is if you're around the dinner table with your family, say whatever you want. You know, that's absolutely yeah. no issue there. Or you go out to a bar with a couple of colleagues, you know, that you really know and trust and who are real world friends of yours, not Zuckerberg friends. You are going to have to actually start distinguishing. Yeah. But um, in any case, in those circumstances, you have much greater control over your audience in the sense of who you can trust to speak things to. You don't have a captive audience the way you do with students, and you're not speaking to a global audience, which is equally problematic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very good. And I think for me, the biggest takeaway here is that so much of the, the topics that are out there um, mm -hmm. have become more like religion than, than mm -hmm. actual topics that are out there. And so when, um, when teachers start saying, this is the way that you should believe, that's when they get into trouble because we, ha we have to let people make their own choices about what and how to believe. And that's one of the tenets of our constitution. Um, and we have to respect that. And we have to not only respect it, but also enable it and help people make their own decisions and not be unduly influenced by us as their teachers or principals or whatever, but allow them to choose, choose their own path in life as much as possible. And, it, and it's deeply challenging. I, I completely yes. appreciate <laughs> how challenging that can be. But ideally, that is in fact what educators are doing because you want to give these students the opportunity to absorb input from a variety of different perspectives and as they become adults, reach their own adult conclusions about mm -hmm. what they believe, what they think is important and so forth. And, and yes, we all have viewpoints about how we'd like that to turn out, but they deserve as growing individuals, the opportunity to accomplish that on their own, or at least mm -hmm. with the you know, the input, the guidance of adults. Yeah, the guidance, not the absolute direction yes. or the goal of turning kids into revolutionaries in 180 days. Um, just <laughs> right. absolutely yeah. not appropriate. Just, it takes at least 200, I think. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, what I, other, I um, completely... I, I absolutely agree with you, Jethro. And, and hopefully, you know, we will, we will have an opportunity to frame that in terms in ethical terms right that this is at the at its core it's an ethical concept that people are given the freedom to develop and make their own decisions so yeah absolutely on board with that the one thing i think that is worth just touching on real quickly uh two points that that are in the show notes um one of them is that there is a surprising amount of stuff occurring around the world in teaching communities um, you know, that we see here in the United States. Um, we've got an example from New Zealand, teacher getting in trouble for social media posts. And, and actually my current favorite that on the WeChat app, which is uh, kind of the Chinese Twitter, you've got parents getting very upset because it turns out that China has been asking more and more parents to grade their student, their, their kids' work during the pandemic. 
And so there's a there's a hashtag going around WeChat in China where all of these parents are basically saying, why are we paying teachers if we're doing all of this work yeah. for the teacher? <laughs> so, yeah. you know, teacher, teacher, parent, student issues are absolutely global in focus, as are the ethical issues that arise. The last thing I want to mention and get your thoughts on is that one of the aspects of the pandemic that I hadn't really thought about until I stumbled across this is that the the pandemic has created job shortages or, or teacher shortages for mm-hmm. school districts. And Huge. so unfortunately, they're having to let some things slide as part of just getting enough bodies in the schools to do the work or not in the schools, but online as well. And so a lot of uh, jurisdictions are concerned because they see misconduct cases rising as part of that. And I thought you might have some thoughts on this. Yeah, you know, that the teacher shortage has been happening for several years, and it certainly isn't something that's new, but it's something that has been definitely exacerbated. A lot of educators experienced the pandemic and said, boy, I'm not doing this anymore. And they left. And I respect their right to do that and think, you know, you got to take care of yourself. That's important. Um, But that left a lot of people in a tough situation. I know several um, different states and different uh, principals specifically who are still trying to find teachers who uh, to fill their classes that the school's already started, you know, and that's, that's a real issue that's, that has been going on for several years, but it's, it's very tough. And so when you bring people in, you, if, if you bring in someone who hasn't had all the training and, and knows some of these things um, through the training, um, there are people who have had the training and still make these mistakes. But when you bring in people that have no idea, it's very easy for them to get caught in some awkward situations that they are totally unprepared for. And it's mm-hmm. really difficult when you hire them the day before school starts and they miss all that planning time at the time that you would be talking about this kind of stuff. It is difficult to, um, to help them see what they need to be doing better at that time. And it's, it's really tough. Yeah. Well, you're really throwing them into the deep end of the pool. And oh, when, yeah. you're fl- when you're flailing around trying to keep from drowning, it's not surprising you might bang a few people in the process. So. Yeah. I, I have a lot of sympathy and, you know, the, I will say that exactly the same thing is happening in higher education. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, Amy's doing um, face-to-face teaching, you know, and if a teacher comes down and has, you know, comes down with COVID and has to quarantine, they can't teach remotely given the school's policies. They have to find someone to handle their classes. It's, oh, it's really challenging. So we'll see what That's happens. Tough. Yeah. yeah. So let's yeah. let's close out today by um, also in the show notes at cybertraps.com. There are tons of um, uh, articles that, you know, we could have gone over and there's no way we can cover everything that's going to be happening um, because just so, so much. So uh, let's talk about how people can get involved and help out, um, because I think that's really important. And first of all, you can donate to help us fund this mission. Uh, centerforcyberethics.org slash donate. Uh, go straight there. You can donate however much you want. And if you are a business or um, know a business that would be interested in partnering with us, we'd love to talk with them and learn more about what they're, uh, what they're providing and how we could work together. 
know, I think that's terrific. Um, certainly in terms of looking for mission partners to directly promote the podcast, we reach out to folks every single week in a bunch of different ways. So that's a great opportunity, but obviously the broader mission of the center as well. We are absolutely interested in hearing from people who may have expertise in some of the areas that we talked about uh, with respect to law enforcement, the legal profession, healthcare providers, and so forth. If you have an interest in the ethical challenges facing those groups, let us know. We're building a team of people to talk about these issues. So we'd certainly love to hear from you. And related to that, if you have skills that you think might be useful, in terms of the work we're doing, everything from web design to marketing, that would be a huge help as well. That's right. Volunteer, uh, let us know. There's a contact form on the centerforcyberethics.org website, that's centerforcyberethics.org. Um, and then, you know, reach out and we'd love to talk with you more about any of the ways that you can help. And if you think I'm passionate about this, but I don't know how I can help, then just say, this is interesting and I want to be part of it. And we've already got a few people who have jumped on board just because they think it's powerful like we do. Now oh, that's fantastic, Jethro. So hopefully we will in fact hear from you. We are going to be discussing the Child Online Privacy Protection Act next week, um, particularly with reference to the educational community. I've been doing a fair amount of work on that for a project that we'll discuss. And then the week after that, we will be doing something on app management for schools and for families. Yeah, that'll be good. And then this Thursday, we're talking to Aura D. Tanner from the AI Education Project. That'll be the podcast coming out this Thursday. Um, so we look forward to having you join us for that one also. Fantastic, Jethro. Well, that wraps up this episode of the Cybertraps podcast. In the coming weeks, we'll continue our coverage of emerging trends in a variety of areas, including digital misconduct, cyber safety, cybersecurity, privacy, and the challenges of high-tech parenting. Along the way, we'll talk to a growing collection of international experts who are helping us to understand the risks and the rewards of digital technology. You can find the Cybertraps podcast and all your favorite podcast apps. We hope that you'll share the show with your friends and colleagues and reach out to us if you have questions or topic suggestions. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Jethro Jones and Fred is at Cybertraps. And if you're still listening, you must have loved this show just like we did. If that's the case, please leave a five-star rating or review in your podcast service. And we appreciate having you in our audience and look forward to having you join us for Aura's uh, great interview this Thursday. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into your master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention 
meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flexible time without all the headaches you get with it usually. Its intuitive design and SIS integration makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE. Do you want to save time on prep work, increase student achievement for all of your students, reliably meet tier one standards? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com B to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve these goals. That's IXL.com B-E.